0: Welcome to the Index Podcast, hosted by Alex Kahaya. Plug in as we explore new frontiers with founders, developers, and investors, building the next wave of the internet. everyone, and welcome to The Index, where we talk with the leading entrepreneurs, builders, and investors building the future of the internet. We do this because we believe that people are worth knowing, and we want to share the stories behind why they are here striving for a better future. I'm your host, Alex Kahaya, and today I am thrilled to welcome my friend, Austin Barak. He is a trailblazing mind who is transitioning from his influential role at CoinFund to embark on an exciting new journey. Austin has been a visionary in the world of digital assets and blockchain. I've learned a ton from him and he's gearing up to launch his own fund called Relayer Capital. And I'm so excited to have you here today and to learn more from you and share all the knowledge you have accrued over the last several years working with CoinFund in your career. So thanks for being here.
1: Thanks, Alex. Yeah, it's it's awesome to be here and I always really enjoy our chats and and excited to, to jam on crypto and all the exciting things that are happening now.
0: For people who don't know you, Let's walk through your background and how you kind of got into this space. And I'd love to just specifically hear, you know, what's the why that drives you to spend all of your time in in the future of the Internet and Web3 and crypto specifically?
1: I first came across crypto in, in 2013 when Bitcoin was making its first run in the spring there. And I found it really, really interesting in this, you know, paradigm shift in the way you think about value and the way you think about how users can self-custody their own assets and creating this new digital form of gold. But, you know, really until 2015, 2016, it didn't click for me until I then came across Ethereum. And it was just like blew my mind as far as the broader surface area of application building where you could take, the programmability of smart contracts and build all these really interesting novel decentralized applications that could then improve the way that people coordinate around the world reduce the trust requirements and also just make the financial system a lot more inclusive and i was working at the time early in my career at a cross border payments startup and you know bitcoin was interesting from that perspective of being very tangential Uh, in terms of the opportunities for remittance and and store of value but but ethereum was that moment for me 2017 went down this people sometimes call it a rabbit hole but it's it's a rabbit hole or it's a one-way street but but either way i never turned back and you know i i just i I don't think there's anything more interesting that's happening in technology right now than the building of this next internet in crypto so Left in 2018, started my own project, a DeFi project, then worked at a crypto ETF issuer. And then been a coin fund for the last three and a half years until very recently. Worked with a number of really top founders across Pre-Seed, Seed, Series A, uh, and Liquid projects, and, and recently left to launch my own fund, investing across a whole bunch of different segments, but really doubling down in the areas that I'm most excited about. And that new, new company is called Relayer Capital
0: you mentioned that Ethereum was the thing that kind of pushed you over the edge. And I had a very similar path. I I read the Bitcoin white paper, probably in like 2010, 2011. And I was like, man, this sounds super interesting, but I didn't quite grasp the impact. then I had an experience with Ethereum that really like unlocked for me, the, the paradigm shift. I'm curious, do you recall like interacting the first time with Ethereum and like, what was it that you did that kind of caused that shift for you?
1: Yeah, so it was a couple of things. One, it was just the idea of self-custody, self-custody, but also being able to interoperate with, with a whole bunch of protocols and the idea of composability on one chain. And at that time, there weren't like a lot of DeFi protocols that you could use. So like the amount of composability that was possible, it was pretty limited. But testing around with like early iterations of, of DEXs, you know, another really interesting piece was... The idea that you could have other sorts of assets that live on the chain that live on this base layer. So, you know, the idea of DAI and other decentralized staple coins and what that could mean from a payments and remittance perspective. But then just the concept of an ICO and how it allowed for raising money in a very, very different way. And that's a fundamental innovation that we saw in in 2017 that that was really impactful. And then, you know, in 2020 and 2021, we had the rise of DeFi and NFTs, and we're going to have even more verticals emerge this time around. But the possibility for composability, programmability, building new sorts of decentralized assets and, and new use cases was just was really, really cool. And also, you know, I've been invest. I had like a kind of interesting childhood, but I've been investing since I was 10 years old in stocks and started trading options when I was 16. So I've been around markets for a long time. And I I always found it a little bit boring that markets were five days a week, 930 to 4 p.m. So when I came across a market that was 24-7, I'm like, this was like, I was made for this. That's Uh, your speed. So so it was really fun.
0: Yeah, I feel like people like you are built different. You know, it's just like, because not everybody can handle that. I think we've had this conversation before, like, I cannot handle trading. It's too much time, attention and and stress. So I have a lot of respect for that with the 24-7, like crypto literally never sleeps. Let's break down composability and... Self custody a little bit. So, like, for people who maybe have never set up a wallet before, and you're trying to explain why this matters. Why does self custody matter, and what does it actually mean? how do, How do you frame that for people?
1: Self custody ultimately means you're in control of your, you know, own financial situation. Your control of the assets, and there's no other party that says you can't make this transfer. You know, they can't seize your assets. And this is something that, you know, we're we're generally pretty fortunate in the United States to live in an environment where we haven't had to grapple with these questions for the most part. But when you look in many parts of the world, censorship resistance and non seizability of assets is is really important because there isn't always the same amount of trust in, in governments. And, you know, there's institutions aren't always as... Unfallible as as they may seem. Uh, and you know, we've seen that recently with with some some of the banks going under uh, in the past year and and what we saw in the global financial crisis. You know, it, it's it's really just cash in a digital context where when you have cash in your pocket, you can do whatever you want with it, and no one can take that from you. And it's really the same thing, but adopting that to the digital era,
0: yeah. I think it's a solid explanation. I think, We have seen, especially recently, a number of cases, especially with FTX, like there are a lot of retail customers and frankly, like professionals, like people who have been in this space for a very long time that are very experienced on what self-custody is, who had a lot of assets on, on FTX. And when that, when that collapse happened, again, seemingly infallible organization to many, like many people got that wrong, including me. Like I lost money on that, you know, like I had money tied up on that and, and didn't get it out fast enough. And so I, I'm like right there with everybody else admittedly. And I think it's like that for me, one of my hopes that like a positive outcome of that situation is a lot more people got educated on it on, self custody. And I think we're seeing a bunch of exchanges come out that are like now starting to try to provide the best of both worlds, give you the self custody of your assets on the exchange, but also provide the same like level of user experience that you got with FTX because it was a great product.
1: That was a really big part of it. And, you know, a lot of the people that were using FTX know how to self custody their assets. But the difference was, the trading user experience was just generally a lot better than you could get on-chain. So people were making that trade-off where there was the trust element of securing your assets with another party for that better experience. And that's why I'm so excited about this cycle, because we've had such an improvement in wallet user experience and minimizing the complexity of transacting on-chain. And then tons of upgrades and next-generation protocols that improve the capabilities of what you can do on chain. So now the need to to make those sort of trust assumptions for the better product, or it's no longer really that trade-off where you can get the same quality of product or, or nearing that level on chain.
0: Yeah. What, what are some of the projects and products that you are excited about that solve some of these problems?
1: Yeah. So one, the, the idea of account abstraction. So being able to pay gas in any token, not necessarily needing to to, to pay in, in the token of, of a given network, to be able to create wallets without needing to manage seed phrases, and, and seed phrases is, you know, for folks that aren't familiar, are those series of words that you have to write down that allow you to then recover access to your wallet if you lose access otherwise. We're seeing a lot of wallets make that process easier or or not even require seed phrases allow for social recovery allow for biometric recovery we're seeing other other examples of of applications even allow for logins using a, a password and an email and if you want access to the wallet to the private and public keys you can do that over time but it's not required day one so you can kind of progressively decentralize and we're seeing on the application side Perpetual's products make a meaningful leap forward. And that was what people used a lot for FTX for derivatives and protocols like DYDX, like synthetics, like Drift, and a whole bunch of others making the user experience a lot better there. And then also projects like, like Jupiter, which is going to be exciting to see their, their token go live end of this month. But it's kind of night and day comparing using Jupiter today versus trading on DeFi a couple of years ago where you can do a DCA, you can get optimally routed to exactly where you want to go. You, and the user interface is so clean. It's just like people are really really in a good place.
0: Yeah, I mean the DCA feature is incredible. I mean, the just like for people what that stands for, it's dollar cost averaging. So if you have a bunch of tokens you want to buy or sell, like you might just want to do it over time as that might be part of your strategy for like cost averaging or it might be a market that doesn't have a lot of liquidity. There's not a huge volume of trading and you want to sell or buy into it without doing like a big price impact. You can do that on Jupiter and you're maintaining custody of your assets the entire time. And it's kind of set it and forget it. You can tell it, for example, I want to buy, you know, a hundred thousand dollars worth of this token over the next seven days. And I want to buy, you know, an even amount every hour and it will just do it for you. And it, the user interface is dead simple. If you have a wallet set up, you just connect to it and you configure it to whatever you want, and it just works. And that was the first time I had something in DeFi that that was that easy when I when I did that.
1: Yeah, it's really awesome. And, and like you were saying, it's not only for for retail users that want a dollar cost average. Even for more you know professional investors and, and traders, for markets that aren't very liquid, you could set it up to say. I'll buy $500 of this token and it'll execute every hour for, you know, some amount of hours or or days, but you don't necessarily have to sit at your computer and click every hour to, to get that going. It's very
0: cool. I've personally had to like sell tokens when I've like invested and gotten in early and then been trying to to take some profits in a really illiquid market. I've literally sat on like five different exchanges and sold tiny amounts, like, you know, looking at the order book manually and reading it and doing it. And it is, it is really painful if that was, that was like maybe two or three years ago. And now, now it's like, at least on, in Jupiter on Solana, you can do it. No brainer. Like you don't even have to think it takes you two seconds to set that up. You know, I've talked about this before. I've always thought about starting my own fund. You know, I don't have nearly the experience that you do just learning from you and maybe sharing some of that knowledge with others like you're doing part VC, so investing early stage, and then you're also doing a liquid strategy, meaning you buy tokens that are tradable today. First, let's talk about the VC. And then I want to talk about the the strategy around liquid. But how do you think about making seed stage investments? What are you looking for? And like, if you're a founder listening to this, this is a great thing. You're going to get some good intel on how to approach Austin. But like, how do you make these good investments? And maybe like give some examples of, teams you, you've you invested in in the past and like walk us through, if you're comfortable, you know, walk us through like how that matches how you think about it and the kind of like returns you were able to generate when you get it right?
1: That's a great question. And there's actually more overlap than, than people might imagine between venture and liquid because crypto is this one really unique asset class where you can have projects at the same level of maturity either be still private or have a liquid token so essentially like you have liquid tokens that are at the earliest stages of development and then you have things that are even more mature that don't have a token yet live so the framework that that i end up looking at these teams and the projects is 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 quite similar but when i think about the venture side first ultimately it comes down to the team the team needs to be that best in class know what they're building, know the opportunity, know the product gaps back and forth. And, you know, when you're investing at the early stage, you're, you're ultimately investing in the in the people and you're going to try and help them as much as you can on the investor side. But it's got to be folks that are really mission driven and mission driven over the long term to build something because, you know, we we sometimes see tokens go live within six months or a year at these really high valuations. And you need someone that that's, intrinsically motivated and is going to want to build something over the long haul. Outside of that, from a product standpoint, it's really two things. One, that they understand the product gap or the product opportunity and are laser focused on building towards that. And then the other side is you need a team that ships quickly and is iterative, but also has the right sense of what limitations or or guardrails needed to be put up from a a risk perspective because you know crypto is all about internet of value and in particular with defi protocols or or anything that that really manages the funds of, of other folks you can have a vulnerability if you have a hack that that can i mean one you lose people's money but two it could be the death of a protocol so you really need to make sure that things are properly audited that things are properly documented and that you roll out in, in a staged and guarded way. And then one of the the other pieces is when you look at a team, do they have the right sense of like how to bring a product to market? Because the technology and the product are, are only one piece. But if you don't actually get the intended user using that product, that then it's all for naught. So Finding founders, and and it doesn't only need to be one founder, you know, the founding team or, you know, the supporting team, but to have that combination of technical expertise, but also folks that really, really know how to communicate a vision and and bring a product to market.
0: I thought about this a lot. And I think some of it is very quantifiable and you can judge it because you can look at what they've shipped in the past. You can look at how they've handled, uh, if they've built a company before or operated in a company before you can kind of like figure out their strategies around go to market, for example, or how, how they balance shipping with security and stability and things like that. There's kind of this magic with people where they have the right combination of like humility and coachability, but also just like ambition and drive and focus and, and being that intrinsically motivated to just grind towards a vision. That part of the person is like very hard to be 100% certain about. I just feel like when I like look at the pattern recognition, at least on my, when I've made the seed stage investments, there is like this instinctual feeling I get on top of all of that, where I'm like, this feels right about the person. And I don't know if that is like the best thing or not, but I do feel like at the earliest stages, the people matter so much. And, and knowing people is the most important part of all of those things. Cause, because the right people will figure out all, wherever they have a gap in the other areas that you mentioned, they'll solve that problem, you know, eventually.
1: The average startup pivots once. When you're making an investment in an early stage team, you're not necessarily investing in that 100% their current idea is going to be the idea that's successful. You're saying that these are the group of people or this is the person that will be able to pivot appropriately and iterate to find the right mar- market opportunity. And, you know, what one of the things that, that makes that decision a lot easier when you're determining who to invest in and not is, you know, I, I often have a relationship with, with founders months or even years before I invest in You know, I'm always happy to have a conversation or or chat with the founder or give advice and having those longer term relationships just and and knowing the people more uh, make makes that a lot easier.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, all right, let's let's talk about the liquid side. So I think, honestly, in investing in in like liquid tokens in a bear market is obvious is kind of the easiest thing you can do. I mean, you don't try to time the market. You can never time the market in any environment. But uh, you can kind of sense if you've been through a couple of these cycles in crypto, you can kind of sense like, okay, you know, things are down a lot right now, they're probably going to go, maybe they'll go further down, but at some point, they'll be up a lot again. Um, And so it's sort of like easy, but when things start running hard, as they have in the past couple of months, and you start looking at being in another bull market, and none of this is financial advice, do your own research, but I'm just like,
1: yeah, no financial yeah, advice.
0: I'm just very curious about how do you manage risk in a bull market environment, which I guess we're in one now, I don't really know how to define that. When you look at that, and there's been a lot of price appreciation, you kind of look at historical movements like... History has repeated itself a lot in crypto but that doesn't mean it always will. And so I'm just like how do you think through that? How do you help LPs think through that and just generally how do you how do you think through managing risk in that in this kind of environment?
1: The way that I think about it is one to your point on bull markets and bear markets this happens every cycle in crypto but it happens elsewhere like we saw in in technology bubbles of the past where When you have an industry and even like before that, like think about the railroads and how they, you know, there was a speculative mania around them all that time ago. But things with so much potential inevitably get overheated and are valued way more than they should be in that short period of time, because people always underestimate how long things will take to be built and and to reach fruition, but necessarily kind of underestimate how big they can be in the very long run. So we see things get too expensive in the short term, but we also th- see things, you know, in the depths of fear get way too cheap, and and, and that's where we were in, in parts of 2022 and 2023. So we've had this massive recovery. Bitcoins maybe triple where it was at the end of 2022. Solana is more than 10x where it was, and one of the most interesting ecosystems. So so a lot of a lot of growth that that's left for that ecosystem. But but when you think about taking profits, when when you think about how to allocate, it, it's really a decision around where do you have conviction and what are the appropriate risk buckets and and at least that that's how I'm thinking about it. Everyone should do their own research and you know apply what's relevant for them. But the way I look at it is on the liquid side, there's. Essentially three buckets of the names where I have the most conviction. This is how I adjust it from a percentage weighting perspective where there's teams that have really interesting products that are showing traction, where I'm really confident in the team and their long-term approach, but maybe there's some element that's not de-risked, maybe they haven't seen as much traction or don't have the dominant share in their vertical that I would like to see. Or, you know, maybe there's a certain element of their roadmap that I haven't. Seen shipped, and I want to see how that develops. Or maybe they've taken a little bit longer to ship than expected, and that would be for me more in that lower end bucket. And you graduate from different protocols in different levels of buckets to more of a mid size to a larger size bucket as you get more conviction and as you're able to de risk some of these elements. And one of the ways that that's often easiest to manage a portfolio, especially if you have an asset that's run. 5, 10, 20, 30x, which could happen in crypto. And I mean, that's the exciting thing about crypto. That there's these opportunities is to reevaluate. Well, if there's an asset that was in the my lowest risk bucket, but still something that I have conviction on and is now just because of the price appreciation in my highest risk risk bucket, should it remain there? Should I you know, diversify out of this position into some of the other names where I have more conviction? And using that framework has helped me think about things and be able to manage risk in a much more nuanced way, especially with big moves up and down. And then also when you have a thesis and everything that all of the investing that I'm doing is names that I have thesis driven that are long term conviction driven buys. But when you have a thesis Map out what you expect to happen over time in terms of rollout of new products, advancement of the technology, protocol upgrades, traction and development, and then determine like, well, it's been a few months. Have they reached where I expected them to reach? Why haven't they or haven't they? And then use that framework to determine you know, how it should be weighted as part of the overall portfolio.
0: How do you get that intel? Like, how do you get answers to those questions? Because like, I think that's kind of that part, big part of the alpha for, for somebody like you is like getting answers to the, like, why isn't this team shipped? And i um, curious, like how you approach that, gathering that information.
1: That's one of the things that, that I like most about crypto where in equities in the stock market, you get quarterly reports. And other than an occasional press release or, or an announcement of some other kind, that's all the data that you get in crypto, you get data block by block by block by block. The data is all on chain. So you can see exactly how many users, how much protocol revenue, how much DEX activity, whatever the relevant metric is, you can see that on an ongoing basis in real time, what the level of usage is. And then also, you know, there's Twitter spaces, there's, you know, teams are in Discord, they're publishing regular updates, and teams are very approachable. And, and you know, the information is all out there. It's just how do you distill and filter that information to be able to create actionable insights from them. And that's one of the things where, you know, there's resources like DeFi Llama and Dune Analytics and Token Terminal and others that make it easier to use. But often the most alpha can be found just digging really, really deep into some of these early protocols where you know, maybe the data is not as standardized, but but it's out there, and just just knowing to look for it and staying on top of things, and that necessitates being on top of things seven days a week. But I don't know. I, I think most of the people in crypto. Crypto is both their job and their main hobby. So so it's a lot easier if it's what you love to do as well.
0: Yeah, and I think the other one that you didn't mention is just GitHub repos because the oh, you know, totally. most things yeah, are open source. So you can like if if there's something on the product roadmap, you can see how many commits, how active that repo is, who's contributing. Crypto really relies on on community so much. And it's community of both like users but also contributors. And so you can kind of see like a cache is like really interesting in the, in the sense that they've been like radically open source. I think they're probably the most open source, like radically open open project. I'll give this example. I really don't think Greg would mind, but I, I found a, like a couple typos on this blog that they posted a couple days ago. And I messaged Greg, I was like, hey, just so you know, like not a big deal, but I found these typos and he sent me the GitHub repo and he's like, hey, you mind making, making a commit? I'm not a software developer, so I'd never actually made an open source commit. And I got to like, I found it because I'm an open source nerd. I found that like awesome. Like I I was able to like make the fee. It was just like literally like four words that I had to fix. And I made a pull request and he pushed it up. And so you can't get that. You can't get that kind of access. And then the other thing is like good founders in this space build and engage community. And that's like their lifeblood. Like two really great examples of this are um, Vivu Norby, who's been on the show before um, and founder of drip and he is just on it with his Twitter game, like engaging the community and, and putting out great transparent content about how everything he's thinking is like right on X or Twitter whatever you want to call it. And then the same thing with the founders of Jupiter, like now is out on there all day, like posting and he's in his discord too. Super active. I don't know how those guys do it. Like the, the 20, like again, 24, seven engaging with the community is so hard, for somebody like you who's like analyzing all this stuff, you can go in there and see like what is the vibe of the community? What what are their plans? It's literally right there. And so you don't even have to have like a private conversation with the founders that are really good at this. They're it's already out there.
1: Totally. And and then also on top of that, even as a non-developer, just a community member, you have the ability to influence the direction or at least inform the direction of a project. By voting with your tokens, participating in the DAO, helping communicate on some of these heat checks for for different proposals, and participating in these open forums... Because users provide the most valuable feedback, and most of the people that own tokens of a given protocol are likely users of that protocol as well. And they're really, really powerful in helping push forward the direction of the project in ways that make the most sense.
0: Yeah, I can't think of another industry where this happens. Like Jupiter, for example, if you look at the messages they put on Twitter in the last like two and a half, three months... They have really involved the community in how the token will be allocated and how it will be airdropped and what's required to even like benefit from it. That's kind of amazing. I mean, in that case, it's got to be. I can only assume it's going to be like millions and millions of dollars going out to the community to the thousands of people that have that have participated in it. And and like you don't see Apple doing that. They're not like listening to you and me about like.
1: But their Saga is doing that. If you if you have no, but I guess not on the strategy side. But if you have a sagaphone. Yeah. You're being rewarded as a user. And I mean, that that's a whole other topic. Maybe we can spend time here.
0: Yeah, let's do it. Talk about it. I think that's fascinating. Like that's net new to me. I don't think anybody even thought that was going to happen when, when that was being built. It's kind of like NFTs. Like you, you saw them sort of around and then all of a sudden it, it, this use case exploded around them and you didn't really see it. I didn't see it for what it was when I first saw like an NFT company. I would love to hear your thoughts on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, incentive design is just so, so unique in crypto, where you can attract early users to give feedback and get the flywheel going on a given product by incentivizing them with the token to be able to then govern the network. And there's so many unique ways that you can approach that incentive design, like what Gito did, for example, with even before they released the token, having a point system but then driving user behavior in the way that allowed them to grow in the most measured way where for example you got a certain amount of points if you liquid staked soul but you got to multiply if you participated in defi or if you were a particular protocol maybe even a larger multiplier or what Jupiter is doing where you know rewarding those early users and giving them an airdrop of tokens for being early supporters But also continuing to give tokens to, to later supporters. And, you know, the, the Saga phone is another great example. I I have my, my Saga phone here, but yeah, I got mine. Yeah. I always have it with me. And I mean, it's an awesome phone. It's, you know, like iPhone quality. Super high quality. Top level Android phone. And you have. A mobile experience that's optimized for Web3 in terms of how the seed phrase is secured or how the seed is secured and also being able to sign transactions with your fingerprint and with biometrics. And we're seeing the same sort of thing around incentive design, but not even from the Saga phone itself. When you bought the Saga, you just have a really great Web3 phone. But then you see other projects like Bonk and Across and Saga Monkeys, AirDrop, Tokens or NFTs to those users because they're such an engaged group of twenty thousand OG soul users that they know they're gonna be really excited to engage then with their protocol. So I I think it's like fifteen hundred bucks already that that Saga phone holders.
0: The big paradigm shift there for people listening should be like you know you have the apple and google play store that take 30% from all the apple from all the developers building applications and i would argue that a lot of the utility for my phone comes from those developers right the people building apps that i then use and saga doesn't care about taking fees from developers or consumers and developers are able to instead come up with now really unique token incentives to acquire users and that's what this airdrop thing is, right? Like I totally downloaded the bonk app to go claim my bonk. And, and I was like, that bonk is a whole nother, that's a story for another day.
1: Yeah. Bonk, <laughs> um, bonk is a very, very interesting story.
0: Uh, I'll be interested to see like in five years, how that's going, you know, like, but, but it has the potential to totally disintermediate the app store. And I think that's the real interesting thing about this phone and, uh, the security features that are built in, like it's all i'm pretty sure solana mobile stack is the the operating system that's like a fork of android or something that is all open source so like any mobile carrier could could implement this and gain exposure to these users there are millions of crypto users out there right now there's 20,000 hardcore like early adopters on this phone but this model to attract people to buy a phone and get users for to app developers is like Total, I feel like it's totally new. Maybe somebody listening to this will chime in and say it's not. But I feel like it's really a new paradigm for for an app store to operate this way.
1: Yeah. And I think it's something that we're going to see where just like a phone is, let's call it like a real world utility. We're going to see that across other real world utility where users are incentivized to try a new product by essentially becoming the earliest stakeholders Where if you think about like Airbnb, right, and there's a new competitor to Airbnb, and you earned tokens of that protocol for using that product, and it was at a comparable level of quality, people are going to use that instead of Airbnb. And we're already seeing experimentation on like, for example, Teleport is an early protocol that's, you know, an Uber type deep uh, protocol but but on a, a decentralized basis and they're able to meaningfully reduce the amount of fees so drivers aren't getting 30% taken off the top but much much less and you're still having that matching protocol and you know there, there's other elements that they need to solve for in terms of quality assurance and safety and all of that but there's so many unique things you can do when you incentivize users and make them stakeholders from from the earliest days. Yeah and then also like as far as the phone it, it's very much a proof of concept that can become big or or can show the way to to other carriers and and other hardware operators. But we're seeing it enable so many other things further down the stack. So that's helped bolster the growth of Helium Mobile and their 5G network. And now we're having people have nationwide 5G coverage instead of through Verizon or AT&T, through a network of decentralized nodes that are provisioning 5G wireless service. And then in the areas where there isn't that data, using T-Mobile as the backup. And because of the cost advantages of these decentralized networks, people are paying $20 a month. And if they share their location data, they're earning $6 a day in mobile tokens. And, and it's just like this completely new paradigm and, and I don't know, really, really fascinating.
0: The phone
1: enables you to
0: get paid to acquire attention, to use apps. And then the phone itself pays you for, for sharing data that all these other telecoms just take from you without really asking. I mean, you check the privacy acceptance thing, but they're making money off that information for sure. They have to be. It is kind of like a dream come true for people who've been building in this space for a long time. It's like actually doing the things we talked about back in like 2016, 2017 and and hoped it exists. And I mean, this particular case, I believe right now is like only possible on Solana, which, you know, I'm obviously kind of biased towards, but I do think it's true.
1: Yeah. I mean, deep in and some of the NFT use cases, definitely because of the amount of scalability throughput and low cost insurance act and some of the things with isolated fee market or local fee markets as well. Solana has enabled a lot of really new use cases and that's why we're seeing so much NFT and, and deep in experimentation there. Uh, so yeah, re- really cool stuff.
0: We're kind of at the top of the show here. So I always ask my guests the same thing, but like, what have I not asked you that I should have asked?
1: That's a good question. Um, I guess we've talked about it a little bit, but but we've seen throughout different cycles, these breakout verticals where in 2013, let's say that cycle was just the widespread or more mainstream awareness of Bitcoin and crypto assets generally. 2017, it was the early growth of smart contracting blockchains, um, ICOs as a use case. um, And and that was kind of the the major thing then. 2021 was DeFi and NFTs. And I think all of these segments grow from cycle to cycle. But I think we're going to see an explosion of DPIN in 2024, 2025, this cycle, whether it's connected cars with things like DEMO, uh, decentralized compute. You mentioned Akash, Render as well. And this helps for the training of inference of AI models. AI is is actually will, will be a really nice tailwind for crypto because you need all of this compute and also verification of AI models. And that's something that crypto can uniquely enable. Um, And then things like Hive Mapper and decentralized mapping, creating a decentralized version of Google Maps. So I think as far as the upcoming verticals that are most poised to break out, like we'll see growth in DeFi and NFTs and user experiences getting way better. But I'm really excited about decentralized physical infrastructure and what that can bring.
0: Amazing. Amazing note to end on. And I just think like, again, we're finally in the age where the incentive alignments that we had hoped would be possible through decentralization are happening. Um, like none of this stuff was possible even 24 months ago.
1: And also, the, the infrastructure, the base layer technology just wasn't really there. And we've seen networks have a lot more scale and also they've hardened a lot and have become really reliable. So so that's been a key enabler. Yeah, I think to. we
0: hit like 305 days of 100% uptime for Solana uh, at like yesterday. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, you're. Yeah, having... and
1: we also new clients coming too, that'll make it even more, uh, more robust.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it.
1: Awesome. Excited to be here. and looking forward to joining again soon. You just listened to the index
0: podcast with your host, Alex Kahaya. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite streaming platform. New episodes are available every Friday.